Hello everyone, it's May 31st, 2022, so the Psyche mission has been delayed due to a software bug, we'll talk about that, then we'll talk to Kenio Wallace and Michael Buswell of Via Space. They're building hybrid rockets fueled by recycled plastic. Yeah, it's crazy stuff, so let's get the show going and lift off. And we've the tower. Welcome to episode 361 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. A bat flew into our house last night. Oh my goodness. Really? Yeah. How'd you deal with that? Oh, uh, I mean, as you deal with any bat. I'm sitting at my desk. My partner, Corey, is sitting in the living room. And she, I don't know, she's playing like uh, Animal Crossing or something. And suddenly she starts screaming. And I'm just like, chill. Like the sun's gone down. <laughs> just, just be cool. And she's like, bat. And I was like, there's no way there's a bat. And then the bat flew into the dining room where I'm sitting and like buzzed my head. Um, so it's either, uh, I'm pretty sure it's a, a small brown bat or uh, a little brown bat, I think is the name, or it might be an Indiana bat. But, uh, yeah, it, it like flew around downstairs for a little bit. So I like ran over to the back door because I assumed that the back door was still open from when the dogs had gone uh, to the bathroom last, but the, the door was closed. So I opened the back door. I turned on the porch light and turned off the kitchen light so that the back door, you know, was nice and lit up. And the bat flew at the back door like three times and didn't go through it. <laughs> and, and then hmm. the bat flew upstairs. And so I ran upstairs. I grabbed uh, a pair of pants, uh, from the dirty clothes to, you know, hold up as a big visual curtain. Oh, mm-hmm. I guess not visual, but audio. Cause you know, echolocation. <laughs> yeah. and so I ran upstairs and it, you know, it had gone from one, it flew from one room to another and it wound up in the room that will be our bedroom. But right now it's full of tools and trim that's come out of the upstairs that is getting uh, refinished and scrap wood and, you know, just construction supplies. And uh, it was in there. I started flying around. So I was like, okay, cool. Corey had run up at that point. I had her hold a sheet in front of the door and I went and opened the windows and uh, tried to herd the bat out the window. And it did the exact same thing it did with the back door, which is it flew straight at the window. And then at the last minute swerved away. And I'm like, bat, you're a bat. You have echolocation. You're not fooled by glass. Just go through it. You can see it's open. Right. Uh, and it's not like, it's not like the, uh, uh, the screens were up or anything. So anyway, the bat winds up, uh, hanging upside down on a piece of, uh, a piece of lumber that was leaned up against the wall. Just absolutely adorable bat shit. And so I was like, okay, the windows are open. Let's just turn off the lights, close the door. And let it just rest for a bit. Eventually it'll get reoriented. It will see, you know, the street lights outside. It'll smell the nice, delicious bugs that are outside and it'll go on its own time. And this seemed like a great plan. Close the door, put the sheet at the bottom of the door because there's a pretty good gap. And we went downstairs and like 10, 15 minutes later, Corey starts screaming again. Uh, and I'm like, what is going on? Like, I'm sure that there's like a mosquito that she's seen that she's freaking out about because the mosquito now looks like a bat because she's, you know, hyped up. Yeah. And no, there's another bat in the house. <laughs> what? Um, okay, so, so you had two bats. <laughs> so I open the back door, uh, turn the light on, and it works perfectly this time. 
bat goes straight out the door. And then I'm like, okay, either that was a second bat or the door upstairs came open. And so I went upstairs and the door was closed. So we're like, it has to be a second bat. How did this, how did the first bat get in the house? I mean, a reasonable hypothesis is it flew in while the door was open for the dogs and then hid for the amount of time it took for us to see it. And the second bat, the the doors have all been closed. We checked all the windows. Where did this bat come from? And so I wound up opening the door and the bat was no longer in that room. So we're pretty sure. No, we know it was just one bat. It wasn't two bats, but the bat escaped from a room with a closed door and a sheet at the bottom. Wow. <laughs> and so the thing is that room is not in t- <laughs> it's not contiguous. Uh or it, it's contiguous with the next room unfortunately. So we tore down uh all of the drywall in the room next to it which is the office and we re-drywalled but we're putting in a built-in bench at one at the wall that joins with the bedroom and we didn't drywall under the bench and the bench is going in front of what used to be a door between the two rooms or oh, well a door into the closet we busted through the closet so there's like a closet door but anyway so it's all drywalled up except for about two square feet maybe three square feet maybe like a square meter at the bottom but it doesn't have drywall on it. It's just studs, but there is, um, a plastic curtain in front of it. And I realized that when the door is closed in the bedroom with the windows open, the, the air pressure was blowing out the windows. And so the plastic curtain had puffed up and a couple of tears that were in it were wide open. And so I'm pretty sure the bat decided to fly upwind, flew through there crawled under the bench (laughs) through the the hole between the two doors under the bench was in the office made it out of the office which doesn't have a door but does have a plastic curtain made it through that plastic curtain and came back downstairs to have a second go at freaking Corey out (laughs) um it basically immediately flew out the back door Mm -hmm. and i'm just like i was just so happy for this bat i was very proud of it uh, for flying through a giant open door. That's my bat story. All right. So in the news, uh, Psyche launch. Psyche? Good title, Ben or Dennis, whoever wrote that. Very much Dennis. That, okay. So a team effort. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Psyche's not launching. We got psyched out by Psyche. Yeah. So what happened? It's been delayed. So, um, yeah, essentially, it's been in JPL for a while now, uh, doing all sorts of tests. Um, you know, the kind of standard thermal vacuum tests, uh, shaking it around, making sure everything's good. And all seemed well, so they packed it up on a C-17 and took it to the... Uh, well, first they actually took it, uh, had to drive down to the March Air Reserve Base, which is this uh, base uh, southeast of Riverside. Um, I had not heard of that before, but yeah. And from there, they uh, packed it onto a C-17 and uh, flew it to what used to be the shuttle landing facility, which is great. Uh, but, you know, the launch and landing facility at Kennedy. And so it's been at Kennedy for, you know, I guess about a month now. And they were getting ready to kind of take care of business. They were going to 
you know, load some new software on the flight computer, do some end-to-end testing with the Deep Space Network and get all ready with all that good stuff. And, of course, you know, they just flew it across country, so might as well test the hardware and software in a clean room to make sure that everything is uh, still working well. And uh, we don't have any details, or very few details from NASA, just from their blog, really, but... um. Apparently, they're having a software issue, and that's going to kick things back about seven weeks. So NASA's statement is, uh, an issue is preventing confirmation that the software controlling the spacecraft is functioning as planned. It's a very vague statement. <laughs> Essentially, uh, software yeah. has been an issue. And again, yeah, uh, it seems like this was something uh, related to the shipping because, again, they had done a lot of testing before they uh, packed it up into that you know, this huge you know, temperature-controlled, you know, not really a crate. I mean, it looks like an ISS module, essentially. They stick it into <laughs> for shipping. That's a good description. So, it, I mean, they're saying an issue is preventing confirmation that the software controlling the spacecraft is functioning. So it's not like there's a software issue on the spacecraft. It's that there's an issue that's keeping them from confirming it. So I wonder if it's just that they didn't ship out all of the testing hardware that they needed. Like maybe they have, you know, some sort of simulation hardware that they thought they could simulate in software, but it turns out to not. And so they need the hardware. Like, I wonder if it's just as simple as, you know, an inventory issue. That's a good question. Your guess is as good as mine. My 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 spitball and firing from the hip here is, yeah, the way that language is, is that maybe it's just a matter of uh, uh, interfacing or at least, you know, at the top level, what, what the person actually reads off, you know, uh, to, to see that things are working correct. That's where the issue is. Not necessarily that the spacecraft's uh, software itself is having any problems necessarily. But uh, or Chris speculating in the chat, bent a connector pin or something. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it is quite a trip to go from L.A. to Florida. So it's several thousand miles. Any other software speculations? Because <laughs> I'm happy to go on. Nope. But yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so they originally uh, had their launch window uh, from August 1st uh, extending to some time into the fall, um, but that August 1st that they were targeting has been slipped. So now they're saying uh, NET of uh, September 20th. So that's about seven weeks uh, back. Uh, but happily, because of its uh, trajectory and the orbital mechanics, that shouldn't affect its arrival date. Uh, where right, Psyche just. A reminder, right? Psyche is the spacecraft that's visiting a uh, an asteroid, 16 Psyche, which once uh, excitingly was thought possibly was just all iron and could have been like the core of a protoplanet that was, you know, revealed after a collision. It was just left behind. Uh, but that's looking less likely. But it is still a, you know, very metal-rich asteroid. And so it's going to be a totally different type of uh, object for us to investigate. So unlike uh, Bennu and uh, Ryugu, where your, you know, your spacecraft just kind of sinks in there <laughs> when you try to touch it, uh, this one I think would have a much harder surface. So how long have they, th- or was the speculation that it was pure iron? How long did that go on before they found out more about it? Because I thought that it, well, I guess I didn't know much, but I thought mm. that yeah, it was generally known to be a fairly ferrous type of an asteroid, mm. right? Mm. And that still is the case, right? It's just not as much, so it's maybe like a little bit more rock or something. Yeah, yeah. So. My understanding, so so first off, I think it's 16 Psyche, right? So that's the number of, they, they started numbering them with the time mm-hmm. of order of discovery. So one series, for example, right? The first asteroid. And so that just tells you right then and there that we've known about this asteroid for centuries. Um, but I think it's really just been in the last year or two that 
they kind of have there's been observations from a few different sources that have ruled out it just being a pure metallic core of you know a protoplanet and so uh we can at least pin it down to 2018 since 2018 because i remember i remember being on the podcast and us talking about how awesome it was going to be to go and visit just metal essentially that was the idea that we had visualizing what its surface would look like and so instead it's like you say i think it's it's still a very ferrous very iron rich uh, nickel rich body it's a different class than these carbonaceous ones that we've been basically sending our spacecraft to yeah because uh, i think that was the one that uh, people who are interested in mining asteroids they always mentioned that and probably some other ones too that i can't name they're like this is one of the ones that would be worth who knows trillions of dollars or something right like. right that that horrible <laughs> silly mm. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i don't know how they how like i don't know <laughs> yeah i mean there's so much about that that seems that seems implausible you know what i mean right. um yeah for a lot of reasons not least of which how do you get that iron or yeah. whatever the nickel or whatever or you know platinum and bring it back i mean like that's yeah, somebody, very costly too. i have to imagine somebody literally just figured out what, what is the price of uh yeah, what's the price you know metal right now um i guess iron and then uh, extrapolate that <laughs> Uh, well beyond its validity, and you end up with it being worth a trillion dollars, uh, as though that wouldn't affect the market price if you were to bring right exactly yeah <laughs> that volume back to Earth. Yeah, so right, so um, they still have work to do in addition to figuring out the software. Hopefully, hopefully it won't take too long uh, to get that sorted. Uh, but they had anyway to integrate reintegrate an antenna that they had been troubleshooting, uh, reinstall the solar panels, which are pretty cool. I remember Ben, you had talked about these. They got the uh, the cross shapes. Uh, when they stick out, uh, they're very, very big, very, very extensive. Um, as well as load it with, uh, it's got seven xenon tanks and they need to fill it up because it's going to be a solar electric propulsion vehicle using, uh, Hall effect thrusters to go and check out Psyche. And yeah. And so the launch, uh, no earlier than September 20th will be on a Falcon Heavy, the first mm -hmm. proper, uh, non demo mm -hmm. operational Falcon Heavy launch, which is super cool. <laughs> I thought there was one other one, but this is yeah, me too. Just a second. I thought Falcon Heavy had Did launched Falcon like Heavy? three times. I thought it launched like twice, but possibly three. Oh, wasn't mm -hmm. like maybe an Arabsat? Maybe I'm yeah, three times. One? The Roadster, Arab Arabsat six A, and USAF STP two. It, it looks like uh, Psyche will actually be the the fifth flight because it looks like Viasat three is going to be flying in August. And Psyche, at best, would fly in September. I, I didn't think about that. You know what it, what it is? Is It's NASA's first use of a Falcon Heavy. There and I, I, yeah, I just didn't sure. think about it. I just figured, oh, all there was was the Roadster. But you're right. I, I, I kind of I don't really remember the DoD launch, but I do remember Arabsat uh, getting yeah. launched. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, you could say that the, the Roadster was the first interplanetary launch, but it wasn't properly interplanetary. Like, this is going to be the first Falcon Heavy that's you know, being used for actual exploration, which is awesome. It hasn't launched anything in like three years, but coming up, yeah. apparently it's, it's, it's pretty well booked through 2024. It's going to be cool. I, I love the Falcon heavy launches. They're really, really good to watch. So yeah. So, so this launch, uh, Psyche is going to be bringing a pair of small 80 pound spacecraft, uh, called uh, the Janus probes. And so these are going to mm. actually split off and go visit, uh, two separate asteroids, which is pretty cool. And you'd like this, David, uh, 
it is also carrying the Deep Space Optical Communications or DSOC oh, yeah. tech demo. And so it's going to try to do uh, optical uh, communications uh, with like orders of magnitude, more bandwidth uh, going out into deep space. I guess I'm wondering where is that going to be deployed specifically? It's a tube that's attached to the spacecraft bus, essentially. Okay, so this will be from like... Psyche, in other words. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's going to be on the Psyche spacecraft. I'm just wondering how far out they're going to be testing this, or I guess maybe that's the point. Oh, I get, yeah. Uh, they're trying Asteroid to do a deep belt, space tech demonstration. I suppose, yeah. That would be amazing, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think uh, NASA officially says, we're going to be testing it from beyond cislunar space, which right, uh, yeah. <laughs> leaves a heck of a lot of wiggle room. Janus is a fun name. So, like, when you see... um pairs of things in space they're often like named gemini or gemini mm. uh mm -hmm. for the for the mythological twins but janus is really interesting because the god janus had two faces one in the front mm. one in the back and so it's it's like we wanted to name it gemini but there are too many of those <laughs> so we're naming it janus <laughs> i agree gemini is a little played out now we gotta have more janices So let's do three short and sweet. Uh, what is the first one, Dennis? First up, Airbus wins contract to build Lisa. Lisa has granted the European multinational aerospace company Airbus the contract to further develop the implementation of the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, or LISA, mission. LISA, which had key technologies tested during the LISA Pathfinder mission of 2015 to 2017, will consist of three spacecraft in a triangular formation, 2.5 million kilometers on a side, that will enable the detection of gravitational waves. Detailed mission design and final tech development are due to be completed by 2024 with a launch plan for the late 2030s. Up next, China prepares for next crewed launch. While China's Jurong Mars rover has gone into a dormant mode as winter and dust storms approach, things are much more active closer to home. The Long March 2F rocket, along with the spacecraft that will carry the Shenzhou 14 crew to the Tiangong space station, have been rolled out to the pad at Jiuquan in the Gobi Desert. While a time and date for launch hasn't officially been announced, liftoff is expected around June 5th. The three Taikonauts, whose identities have not yet been revealed, will stay at the station for six months and oversee the arrival of the Wentian and Mengtian modules. And finally, uh, Starliner present and future. Starliner landed at White Sands this week after spending four and a half days docked to ISS. While the OMAC thruster failures are still being investigated, the RCS thrusters that failed have been recovered and were tested after undocking. That test showed an interesting signature, in quotes, that looked similar to their original shutdown telemetry. Boeing says a design change is unlikely. A permanent fix to the pre-flight thruster valve issue will likely be kicked down the road past crew flight test uh, by using the same nitrogen moisture purge. NASA said that it will wait until post-flight analysis and any remediation steps are complete before it schedules CFT, which should still carry Mike Fink and Butch Williams to station for a short or mid-duration stay. A possible third crew member will also not be assigned until that time. Looking even farther forward into the future, not enough Atlas V's remain to supply Starliner launches through the end of ISS's planned life. However, until Vulcan is crew rated, ULA has committed to keeping the Atlas V team on board and ready to support Starliner launches. This has always been my thing with Starliner. I hope it has a nice long career, and if it does, I don't think anyone's going to give a crap that it was delayed a few years. Yeah, that's a good like, point. That'd be, that'd be like, like I know Cygnus just stopped flying, but like 
if somebody was like, hey, Cygnus, uh, what if it didn't fly for the first time in 2013, but instead in 2015? I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> so this week we are speaking to Kenny Wallace and Michael Buswell of Via Space. Uh, welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Hey, thanks. Kenny, you are the lead propulsion design engineer, and Michael, you are the primary structures engineer. So I guess if you could both uh, tell us about a little bit more about what that means, um, although I think we have an idea. And I guess also, what is Via Space and how did it come to be? Because it's a pretty interesting company um, in the, uh, what I believe, the small sat launch business, right? Yeah, that's correct. We're in the small sat industry. Um, but I mean, I, I guess the quick and easy answer is uh, I, as a propulsion designer, I try to make the rocket move. And then Buzzy, Michael <laughs> being the structures guy, tries to make the rocket not move. Yeah. Well, I try to make it move in the ways that we want it to move and not break in ways that we don't. <laughs> yeah. M- move all at the same time, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and not in weird ways and not get it to do funky, weird uh, uh, things when it leaves the pad. So that's that's kind of our little dynamic. He gives me some stuff and I try to make sure it doesn't break. Yeah. <laughs> and I try to break it. Yeah. So I, th- I think we need to talk about why, what makes Via Space different. It's, it's your hybrid rocket. And I think before we can talk about that, we need to talk about hybrid propulsion in general. So, uh, I guess this is, this is mostly a Kenya question, but <laughs> what are the advantages and disadvantages of solid rockets and liquid rockets? And how do hybrid rockets uh, overcome some of those disadvantages and, and combine the advantages? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to try and relate these to cars because everybody seems to be getting more and more familiar with hybrid cars, gasoline-powered cars, and electric cars with the way that the uh, modern auto industry is moving. Uh, so you see something very similar between uh, liquid solids and hybrids on the rocket side, except without that electric side. Um, instead, it's different forms of chemical propulsion. So a liquid bipropellant rocket, so like something like the Falcon 9 uh, that most everybody's familiar with, it uses a liquid fuel and a liquid oxidizer. So they have fine control over the thrust and throttling of the engines as well as they can start and stop as however many times that they want to as long as they have enough of the TTEB, which is triethyl aluminum, triethyl borine, a, uh, a hypergolic fluid that will immediately ignite as soon as it comes into contact with oxygen. Uh, whereas a solid is a, it's a, a mixture of a solid fuel and a solid oxidizer. So those, uh, because they're pre-mixed before the combustion reaction starts, as soon as it lights, it continues to burn. An advantage of the solid is that it is a denser structure and very simple. You light it and then it goes. Whereas the liquid, you need to have fine control to make sure that everything works properly. Uh, both of them, because both their fuel and oxidizer are stored in the same state of matter, so solid, solid, fuel, solid oxidizer, and then liquids, liquid fuel, liquid oxidizer, the two propellants are very easy to mix together and then combust, so you do have an inherent risk of detonation with them. Hybrids reduce that risk significantly due to having a liquid fuel or a liquid oxidizer and a solid fuel rather than a both being the same. So by them being in two different states of matter, we have a lot more control over the propulsion system with regards to a solid and similar control to that of a liquid. But because we've got a liquid fuel and a solid or liquid oxidizer and a solid fuel, we are able to uh, dynamically throttle our engine by increasing and decreasing the amount of oxidizer that is added to the combustion chamber. Now, because they're in different states, it makes detonation a lot easier. Now, what does that mean? That means that the only uh, 
effects that you could get if there was some sort of ish, uh, anomaly that was to occur, the only fuel that is available to react with the oxidizer is the fuel that has already started to melt away from the fuel grain and burn in the reaction. So a way to think about it is like a log burning on fire. So a log is solid and then it's reacting with the oxygen in the atmosphere. So you have only a certain amount of fuel that is able to react with that atmosphere. If you blow on that fire too much, it blows out and it stops burning. It's the same thing with our engines. If you blow on it too much, the fire goes out. So if there was, say, too much oxygen in the combustion chamber, the engine would actually shut off because it wouldn't have enough energy to burn. Um, and the same thing if you didn't have enough oxygen in the combustion chamber. You have to have just the right amount of oxygen in order to burn the fuel at the right temperatures. Otherwise, nothing works at all. Um, so it makes it a lot harder to run a hybrid versus a solid or a liquid because those are much more predictable. So one of the things that we've been working on extensively has been trying to increase the reliability of adding the oxygen into the combustion chamber to improve that stability. So with liquid oxygen, you don't really have a lot of chances of anything major occurring because the pressure differential over the injector prevents uh, overpressurizations inside of the combustion chamber. However, uh, older oxidizer systems that we used to use and are still using in other cases uh, do have a, a higher potential of something occurring, uh, such as like nitrous oxide, which is used by some of our competitors and what we were using in our earlier engines. So nitrous oxide, because it is... Uh, a, a triatomic molecule, so two nitrogens and one oxygen, it doesn't want to stay as nitrous oxide. It wants to split into the nitrogen and oxygen. And if you add enough heat energy to it, it will immediately go from nitrous oxide to nitrogen and oxygen, and it'll go from about 700 PSI to 10,000 PSI in almost instantaneously. So if too much nitrous is added into a combustion chamber, you can have what's called an overpressurization event where it will actually pop the nozzle off of the engine due to that high pressure burst. Hybrid engines are, are so fascinating. And I was actually doing some reading this morning. Uh, I was looking at the different types of fuels that we've used in the past. Um, and I actually found an example of an early hybrid rocket engine that used uh, a solid oxidizer and flowed the fuel over it, which is <laughs> just, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess it could work if you have the right materials, but it just seems really weird. Um, I mean, I if was, you get oxygen cold enough, you can freeze it and use sure, that. Sure. Um, well, and, and that leads to another question I had, and th this is more of a general question about hybrid propulsion, but what phase of fuel is combusting? You said you talked about the fuel melting off. I guess it probably depends on what fuel you're using, but are we are we generally seeing gases combust or Yeah, so combustion only generally occurs in a gaseous phase. You can okay. get it to occur in a liquid-like state, uh but that hot requires significantly higher pressures and temperatures, so you don't generally see that occurrence. Sure. So because our fuel is solid, you have to have it phase change from that solid state all the way to a gaseous state. Uh, so it requires an, an increased amount of energy than what is required with a liquid. Well, and so for different fuels, do you normally see melting or sublimation? Um, so it depends on the fuel. So a lot of them you do see more of a melting process. And then you, uh, for hours, you see what's called pyrolysis. So it's actually oh. the breaking down of the uh, primary uh, hydrocarbon chain. So it's mostly hydrogen and, and uh, carbon 
in a, in a chain structure. And what happens is you heat it up, it breaks down into the base gaseous uh, hydrocarbons, so like ethylene and uh, ethane and methane. It breaks down into those particular gases um, immediately from that solid phase because it's a uh, crystalline chain structure. Is that simpler than when it melts? Conceptually, I would think it's simpler than when it melts just because... So it, it's, it's interesting. So technically, a lot of these plastics don't melt. Uh, they go through what's caused a glass transition phase. So it's more of like a fluidous solid, but mm. you can think of it as melting. But something like a, a paraffin wax, which is another common hybrid rocket fuel, that does melt because it's just the same thing as candle wax. And mm. you see candle wax melt all the time. So I'm not too familiar with many hybrid rocket engines. The only one that comes to mind off the, off the top of my head would be Virgin Galactic and, you know, their spaceship one. Um, mm -hmm. And, and uh, I understand that they use what they call some some kind of a rubber fuel. And obviously this you're calling plastic. So I'm wondering what the difference is. I mean, like obviously one's rubber, one's plastic, but what kinds of fuels are typically used in, I guess, what makes yours new? And in fact, is it new? Like, is this something that's been used previously or is this a new formula? Yeah, so I, I, can, I can definitely elaborate on that. So they use uh, what's called HTPB or hydroxyl terminated polybutadiene. Uh, it's a two-part uh, thermoset polymer. So what that means is they, they mix two different chemicals together, and then over time it cures to become that rubber solid object. So things kind of like a two-part epoxy, and they pour that into a mold, and it creates the tubular shape that is the fuel grain. Uh, but what they're using is a fuel that's been around since so the 1940s or so from original solid rocket boosters. So solid rocket boosters are traditionally a mix of this HTPB, which is the binder that they mix everything together inside of, and then aluminum particles and ammonium perchlorate. So basically the Virgin engine, what they've done is they've removed the aluminum and the ammonium perchlorate. The ammonium perchlorate is a oxidizer. So they've removed the oxidizer from it and then they have the oxidizer as the nitrous oxide in their tanks. And then the aluminum is removed because, well, aluminum increases the overall impulse density so that means the amount of energy per unit volume in the fuel it requires a lot more energy to burn so while using nitrous oxide as an oxidizer you can actually see reductions in your combustion efficiencies as well as that aluminum will erode away the throat if you are using an ablative throat which they do on their engine so it could actually reduce their overall performance over time significantly more so than if they take the hit of a slightly lower impulse density due to the lower density of the rubber versus the aluminum. Uh, the other major uh, fuel that is used, as I said before, is paraffin wax. That has been studied by a company called Space Propulsion Group. It's also being used currently by some of our competitors in Europe and uh, such as High Impulse and uh, various other companies that I can't remember off the top of my head at the moment. But paraffin seems to be the major leading uh, fuel material in a lot of the newer companies. What we're using is a derivative of recycled plastics, uh, mostly composed of high-density polyethylene and other uh, commonly available recyclable post-consumer plastics. Um, but the high-density polyethylene in specifically was investigated by NASA to use for a replacement for the shuttle rocket boosters after one of the shuttle disasters when the um, solid rocket boosters burned through the side and exploded 
So they were investigating the usage of high-density polyethylene, but the problem that they were having was because it has such a high coefficient of thermal expansion, which means that as the fuel material increases and decreases in temperature, it has a tendency to shrink and expand. So when that happens, the material will warp and come out of the main shape from the process of producing the fuel grain and the installation into the engine. So you have a lot of issues with tolerancing and making sure that it'll actually match the required specifications. We've solved that problem by using additive manufacturing, which allows for us to build it layer by layer, eliminating the effects of that uh, shrinkage over time. Because I was kind of wondering that, like that's uh, a big part of this is um, the additive manufacturing, but I'm like, well, do you need to do it that way? Because that's not traditionally how it's done. So I couldn't figure out what the advantage of that was. Yeah. So, yeah. so traditionally the fuel grains are casted. So think like you've got a big tube, like a cake and you pour it into the cake pan and you let it sit over time and it cures to make that. Uh, the problem with high density polyethylene is because it's got such a high coefficient of thermal expansion that as it cools, it shrinks so much that it warps out of shape and then no longer sits in that cake pan very well. Kind of like the opposite of if you were to bake a cake or if you baked a cake without the baking powder and it kind of shrunk, shrunk down and became a shriveled mess. I have a question related to that. So in, in solids, when you have your solid fuel, you change the internal geometry depending on what kind of you know burning rate you want to have and you can taper it in different ways to change the thrust over time. Mm -hmm. Do you still do that with hybrids when you have throttling capability? You can do that, um, but it's easier to uh, throttle it by changing the amount of oxidizer that's going into the combustion chamber over time. So rather than making it, because with solids, the reason they do that is they don't have any control of it over it after they light it. So by doing that, they can tailor the rate at which the surface area is exposed and the amount of thrust produced by that engine is directly related to the amount of surface area exposed on the fuel grain. Whereas ours, because of the way that we inject our oxidizer, we can control the amount of fuel that is being consumed based off of the flow velocity of the oxidizer inside of the combustion chamber. That makes sense. But the internal geometry is sort of still changing, or at least the surface area is still growing, right? So you have to compensate for that, right? That is correct. Okay. So we, we've got a special injector design that is patented or patent pending, uh, we expect to have approvals for that in the coming months that allows for us to dynamically control the flow field mechanics inside of the combustion chamber that accounts for that changing surface area in the fuel grain. So I, I was thinking about that and I was wondering, yeah, if you if you had a closed loop control or if you just, you know, f calculate a curve or experimentally arrive at a curve and just go with it. It's kind of a combination of the three. Oh, really? uh, we've, we've got a specialized software that we've been developing that will uh, calculate out the rate at which the fuel will burn. And then using additive manufacturing, we can customize the exact geometry layer by layer on the fuel grain. So think of it like Russian nesting dolls. And we can go through and at every second of burn, we can have the exact amount of fuel based off of the oxidizer flow rates available to the combustion system, as well as we can, by dan changing the amount of oxidizer going to the chamber, because we have a vortex flow field injector, the radial flow changes the velocity of the oxidizer and the change in velocity of the oxidizer has a direct correlation to the speed at which the fuel burns. Think of it like we're controlling a hurricane inside of the combustion chamber. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I'm really glad you said that because it, it was going to be one of the things I was going to ask about because I've seen photos of hybrid rockets with a vortex. Like I, I don't know what they did. It, it looked like they cut a window in the side of it and I don't 
I don't know, maybe it was CG or something, but like the idea of a vortex inside of this is really interesting. Does that helical shape? So it lowers your, the, the speed of the oxidizer flowing over the fuel grain, right? Like what, what's, well, the, what what's does, the point of that? What, yeah, well, what it does is it decreases the axial flow velocity, but increases the, the radial flow velocity. So uh, there's some videos on YouTube of people doing it in a PMMA grain, which is a plexiglass, mm. and they've got uh, swirling flow hybrids going in there, and you can see that the, the flow is moving at a in a rotational flow, which increases the amount of time that it is in the combustion chamber, which improves the mixing and combustion efficiencies, because the longer that the fuel and oxidizer spend in the combustion chamber, the more they'll mix and burn together. Um, that's one of the, the problems with with solid rockets is that you get combustion outside of the rocket and you know a that's bad for efficiency but also it's bad for potential human rating later down the line because you are you know going to potentially have humans on parachutes falling through burning fuel like it's it's not great and so i was going to ask if that was something that you had looked at or were going to use um do you have an idea of how much combustion efficiency that buys you? Like, can you give us an idea of how important uh, a vortex flow like that is? So we're running through testing and analysis right now, so I can't say exactly what numbers we're getting uh, until we get further down our developmental paths. Uh, so that's something we should have in a few months as we start to build out our new engines that we'll start testing uh, to demonstrate the orbital class engines as well as a smaller scale variant of that. Uh, however, I can say that our engines should be getting equivalent efficiencies to that of a more traditional liquid bipropellant RP1 LOX engine. So Ben, you said that what happens is you get combustion outside of the rocket, but actually, first of all, I didn't know that that happened too much. I mean, I, I, I know that some stuff comes off, you know, like there are some chunks that fall out, but I thought that basically, you know, by mixing the oxidizer in the way that you do, is it just to prevent the oxidizer from just leaving the engine entirely and not being combusted at all? And and like and obviously that would not be very efficient. So it's basically just to keep it in the chamber longer, right? Well so it's it's specifically mostly related to hybrid rocket engines. So hybrids the biggest issues are combustion stability and uh, combustion uh, consistency. So a lot of that issue is because the fuel and oxidizer don't spend as much time mixed together to burn. Because if you think about it, so if you get a long cylinder that you're burning away from the inside out, the fuel and oxidizer are moving down that cylinder. So the fuel and oxidizer that exit the, at the top side of the cylinder are going to burn in completion. But towards the bottom of the fuel grain, you're coming right out of the fuel grain and going straight into the nozzle. So those last little bits there don't get as much time to mix and burn. So by creating that vortex flow, we can increase that time that each particle is inside of the combustion chamber, be it coming from the very top or coming from the very bottom. So yes, solids do have some of that burning um, in the atmosphere after it leaves the main combustion chamber, but most of it's fully combusted. The real issue you see is due to the, uh, the OF ratio, so the amount of oxygen versus the amount of fuel in that chamber. But usually those are optimized according to the total uh, mass of the propellant versus the volume of the propellant, and it creates the, alt, the most optimal ratio of those per unit volume and per unit mass. Um, so while that's not a complete combustion, it is the most efficient combustion for what you are carrying up. But that's a whole nother rabbit hole that we could spend hours <laughs> talking about. So one of the cool things about 
your propellant as a recycled plastic is that it's, you know, something that we have sitting around. Um, but I was wondering what the associated costs of a non-toxic fuel grain might be. We see, um, green by propellant, um, What's that one green hypergol called? Oh, it has a long name. I don't know what the yeah. I can't keep but track it, of them. Yeah, but it, it has all these different. Every time we we find something that we want, like a, a fuel that doesn't destroy the planet or doesn't destroy the planet quite as quickly as a, as the case may be, there, there's always a cost associated with it. So, what do you see as the pros and cons of using HDPE? Um, do you see any costs in using recycled HDPE rather than virgin HDPE? And what are some of the pros and cons going into this decision, uh, for, for fuel selection? Because it's, it's very exciting fuel to wind up on. So I want to understand some of the, some of the thinking that got to this point. Yeah. So, so it's actually a really funny story how we actually got to the recycled HDPE, um, because we reached it not because it was recycled, but because it was cheaper. So I was talking with one of our sourcing vendors uh, for polymers, and we had selected HDPE and its derivatives at that point already due to the inherent efficiencies that we get out of it. And it's actually cheaper than the old material that we were using. So we used to be using ABS, which is about $5 a pound, whereas HDPE is about a fifth of that traditionally. Um, and then... As we were going through the motions and I was talking with our plastic suppliers, one of them suggested to me, well, hey, if you get this post-consumer recycled HDBE, it's going to be even cheaper for you to get this than it is to get the virgin HDBE. And I was like, oh, yes, I want that. Um, not even thinking about the recycled aspect of it, and more so just because it was cheaper and uh, us being a scrappy startup still, especially at that point in time, I was like, ooh, cheaper is better. Um, so we went with that and started testing it. And then I, I was talking to our marketing department about it and they were like what you're using recycled plastics and you didn't tell us um <laughs> so they right. they just took it and ran with it but yeah no so we accidentally came across it more so from a cost savings standpoint rather than it was for a uh, efficiency or a marketing ploy um it's just a happy coincidence that it works towards helping with using uh waste plastics i love it new, new space is awesome so when it comes to manufacturing, what kind of, what kind of material are you, are you getting? Like it can't be pelletized, right? It's got to be like shreds or something. Does it? No, no, it's it, we're getting it's purely pelletized. Oh wow, okay. And it, it, do you see fairly consistent properties out of the materials that you're getting? Like what? What does that actually look like in the in the factory? Yeah, um, so they they they, uh, they measure it out by what's called melt level, and by using that melt level or melt rate, you can actually calculate out what the chain lengths of mm. the hydrocarbon chains are based off of how it melts and how it flows through the nozzles. Uh, so we get rather consistent uh, batch to batch materials due to the the use of the melt flow rate control for that. So so if that's your input the melt rate what's the output do you print thicker areas when you're getting different melt rates or something like that well no what we do is we order recycled plastics specifically with uh predefined melt flow rates so the so the post-processing companies go through and they they shred up all the plastic and then they separate it out based off of those melt flow rates uh. and then they sell the pellets of specific melt flow rates 
and then we can take that and then blend it with some of the other things that we add to our fuel to make it work as efficiently as we are. And then we take that and put that into our 3D printers and print our fuel rings. Right, right, right. Okay. So you pay attention to the sticker is the answer to that question. Exactly. <laughs> okay. We read the ingredients. Right. <laughs> cool. So you, you mentioned that you used ABS, which I believe is also considered a, a thermoplastic, uh, right? It, that does a, yeah. ABS is a thermoplastic. So like, how do these, how do these types of thermoplastics differ from other propellants when it comes to actually building an engine? And I mean, we've talked about a, a couple of the things, but are there any plastics, uh, that feel like categorically different that have been used that, you considered or didn't consider for one reason or another? When we were using ABS originally, we used it because it was a commonly used 3D printing plastic. There wasn't really a, a trade study on what the benefit of the fuel was. Um, mm -hmm. Now, it was selected partially, in fact, that it was very similar to HDPE, the high, or sorry, HTPB, the high density or hydroxyl terminated polybutadiene rubber that is used in more traditional hybrid rocket engines like the Virgin engine. Um, so that's part of the reason why ABS was selected originally. Um, but about a year and a half, two years ago, uh, we went down the path of doing research on seeing if there were any more fuel options, thermoplastics that we could use that could uh, have a higher energy density to them. And going through the process, it turns out that some of the higher recycled plastics uh, are a lot easier to recycle, or that are a lot easier to recycle, have a higher energy density from a burning perspective. Um, and they burn a lot cleaner too. So what we're using now are plastics that are pure hydrogen carbon chains, whereas ABS has nitrogen and other molecules in there that mm. can produce uh, more dangerous off gases that uh, are worse for the atmosphere. So while yes, we are burning a hydrocarbon fuel and it does produce CO2, it is still better than some of the nitrates and nitrides that could be produced by the ABS or other polymer-based fuels. And until there's a way to make a solid hydrogen, unfortunately, <laughs> we are gonna have some sort of carbon-based emissions. Yeah. Uh, what about, like, I, I'm assuming that there are properties that are, are not going to make uh, a corn-based plastic a good idea, but like, is there any fuel that you could use? Obviously, this is not going to have the benefits of using recycled materials, but what about a plastic that is made off of atmospheric CO2, like like a corn-based uh, a plastic? Well, it's funny you say that. Um, most uh, most of the bio-derived plastics now. So I can, I can, I've been in talks with some companies about getting a bio-derived variant of HDPE and the other things that we blend into it. Because uh, again, it's just hydrogen and carbon chains. So as long as you have a source of hydrogen and carbon, you can make it out of anything. So I can pull CO2 from the atmosphere and process that into that. Uh, there's actually ways we can do in situ resource utilization. Um, on Mars to produce uh, HDPE and its derivatives as well, because the process that SpaceX is looking to use to produce methane actually produces ethylene and ethane before it produces the methane. And those could be turned into methane or they could be turned into polymers using uh, polymerization. So if we really wanted to, we could 
produce fuel grains on the Martian <laughs> atmosphere. It's, it seems kind of twisted to do uh, in-situ resource utilization to make plastic to burn. Like <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. That's really delightful. So for, for your fuel grain, I was looking at the literature and there's some interesting uh, studies that have been done looking at printing um, they, they were using ABS, I believe, um, but printing yep. a fuel grain with voids in it and then shoving things in those voids. And, and it kind of sounds like you're mixing additional things into your fuel grain. Um, but yep. I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the geometries that you're using. Did you look at voids? Are you using voids now? Do you use any interesting geometries to encourage your vortices or, or anything like that? So what I can say is that we're using a primarily cylindrical geometry. Um, I can't really go sure. more in depth on that due to uh, IP stuff, but uh, we are not using voids. The The biggest issue that I've seen in voids, and I've, I've done some research onto it and talked to some of the people that have done research with that, is that uh, as soon as you burn into that void, all of mm -hmm. the material that's in that void immediately dumps into your combustion chamber. So uh, you don't really have a lot of control, and it's a very sporadic dumping of the fuel of that whatever your additive is into the fuel chamber into the combustion chamber so you can actually see spikes of pressure in the combustion chamber due to that increase in fuel available yeah um so by mixing it into our fuel uh, we have a complete control over how much is being inputted to the combustion chamber every second so it's a lot less random and it's uh, much more consistent. Um, do you print? I mean, you must be printing multiple segments and, and stacking them, right? Nope. It's a single piece. So we have a, another patent that uh, is going through the final approvals right now, just got accepted, uh, that uh, discloses how we produce it in a single piece horizontally. Um, so rather than oh. producing it vertically, like a lot of the current literature is, we can produce it horizontally, uh, which increases our... Uh, ability to produce the fuel grains at a very high rate uh, because the longest thing with 3D printing is that Z height. So the taller something yeah. is, the longer it takes to print. I don't know how much you've done 3D printing yourself, but if you've noticed when you have a really short and squat part, it prints really quickly, but the taller your part is, the longer it takes to print. So by producing our fuel grains in a horizontal manner, we can drastically reduce the amount of time it takes to produce the fuel. Oh my gosh, I, I can't wait to learn more about that. That's really exciting. And and because uh, we're present printing it horizontally, it's very easy to make a very long and skinny 3D printer, right. uh, whereas doing a tall one is very difficult. And then we, we need to talk about your your rocket, the the Dauntless. Um, and so we've got two questions that kind of sit halfway between these two topics, and I think it'll make a good segue. So to start us down that path, are you using uh, 3D printing anywhere beyond your fuel grain? All right. Yes. This, this is where we're going to hand it off to Buzzy. <laughs> there we go. Yes. No, this is, this is perfect. So me, uh, I'm a big fan of 3D printing. Um, I've kind of my background, a lot of my background is in 3D printing, both like desktop of all different types. I've built them. I've coded them. I've pretty much done anything you can do with the 3D printer. I've done it. <laughs> um, so basically, I'm a big fan of trying to utilize it in any way as possible. And one of the ways that we're trying to implement it as much as possible, because there's different ways that you can you can promote mass savings and the, the structures of vehicles. And like one of the, the main ways that you're seeing a lot of companies go now is like fully composite, um, where they try to use composite structures as much as possible and, and get that uh, stiffness and strength as much as possible um, by also reducing the, um, the overall dry mass as much as possible. 
So there's companies that go that kind of route. And then there's companies like if you've seen uh, Relativity, where they actually go ahead and 3D print like the whole body and the whole structural system of the rocket. So that's kind of like your two extreme cases. Um, and essentially what we're trying to do is kind of use, uh, go, go a path uh, kind of in between the two. We're doing it on a hybrid. Yeah. <laughs> we're doing a hybrid. <laughs> if, if you can, if, if there's one thing that we're, we're known for is we love uh, hybrids. So <laughs> uh, basically um, there's, there's essentially new softwares out there that um, can perform processes called uh, topology optimization or um, other mass optimization kind of techniques where you kind of define load casing and then the software actually goes ahead and produces the most uh, efficient structural path for you, depending on whatever material and whatever conditions you kind of give it. So essentially we're trying to go ahead and use that to produce certain metal components um, to try and make sure as they're as light as possible. Um, so we're planning on using as much polymer and metal 3D printing as possible. And uh, one thing that kind of touched base on both our sides again is we do a lot of metal 3D printing for the injectors and the nozzles and that kind of stuff. Um, and that's probably the, the most use case we have right now. But it's, it's definitely exciting to see all the new advancements coming out and new machines are coming out every new month and it just expands the possibilities that you just never even thought. Yeah, we've got an injector that uh, we're working on together right now that we're hoping to send out to print this week uh, that uses this topology optimization software very heavily. Um, and you're getting an organic looking lattice structure on it that helps hold the pressure in the combustion chamber in the system and it drastically reduces the overall weight of what the injector would be because traditionally you just see the injector is just this giant metal plate yeah. um, that weighs a ton yeah. um, and this one because of the topology optimization we're getting an injector that is light enough for a single person to pick up with one hand for an orbital class vehicle yeah it's it's pretty and it's pretty crazy that the depth as to which this software can go and we're, we're kind of still at the beginning phases of, of kind of implementing it but essentially instead of trying to go with cnc standard uh, machining practices and having these thick walled members that you can't necessarily do much about um, because especially if you have to have uh, certain uh, clearances and tolerances that you can't really um, you, you can't really uh, adjust with using a CNC, but with a 3D uh, metal printer, you can actually, um, in between two important wall geometries, so like say for cooling channels or something like that, and you've got two that are very close to each other, but you don't want to necessarily have solid material in between. You can actually print uh, an infill, kind of like you know a standard um, material infill to, to kind of reduce the weight, but still give you the properties that you need. Um, and depending on what, what you want, you can go as simple as just a standard kind of infill, or you can have a kind of um, simulation driven infill so that based on the pressures, temperatures, flow rates, all that stuff, it actually generates the structures for you with those in mind. Bird bones is the idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Buzzy, the software really sounds impressive. Um, it has me, I'm wondering, are there fundamental or systematic differences uh, with regards to the structure and loads on a hybrid rocket that's just different compared to launch vehicles with other propulsion systems? So yes and no. Again, just the fact that it's the hybrid, um, each kind of propulsion system has its own kind of specific mounting method. And depending on, say, for however you want to actually go ahead and thrust vector and control your system, it kind of affects the, the structure as well. Because you kind of see with a lot of liquid vacuum propellants um, and uh, vehicles with smaller engines, they actually gimbal the whole engine and that kind of gives you the TVC so you can uh, point your rocket in the right direction so you actually go where you want to go. Um, so that kind of 
influences the the structure in one way, but since our engines are much more massive than than liquid, um, like than the equivalent size liquids, we gotta have a little bit different uh, structural cons considerations for it. But it's a lot better than solids because solids, if you think of it, it's just a, this giant tube that is being eaten away at the inside and getting shot out the bottom. Um, and what happens a lot of the times with solid motors is you actually have another large uh, tube on the outside that's meant to withstand the, the pressure um, the pressure force inside of the uh, engine casing in case anything goes wrong. So you almost have this double wall feature that adds a lot of dry mass. So we're kind of going hybrid <laughs> uh where engines are are wrapped in and um in a, in a specific uh carbon that that helps us on the structural side but also reduces the mass as much as possible and then we're still trying to do the a lot of the same stuff that you see uh certain liquid bipropellants do in which they use the main uh oxidizer tank as the main structural um takeout of the whole vehicle so essentially using uh structural tanks so that's kind of the same from a liquid bipropellant so you can almost take that as a drop a uh, drag and drop but what's nicer is that we've only got one of those big tanks and we've got a a lot less fluid lines and uh, secondary components to actually mount inside the, the vehicle. So it actually opens up the space inside a lot more. So it allows you a lot uh, easier time for modifications and uh, um, swapping anything out that you need. Can you, this is something that is basically ungoogleable. And so I was just wondering mm -hmm. if you could say, where's, where did the name Dauntless come from? If you know. That's an excellent <laughs> question. Um, so there's, there's a couple of piece parts to it. Um, part of it is related to uh, Sid Gutierrez, but I don't know the entire story off the top of my head. So you were talking about the, the integration between different areas of design, and I was wondering how much, uh, because we know that the, the engine design informs the vehicle design to a great degree, how much does it go the other way? How often do you get to go to Kineo and tell him to change his engine? Not very often, unfortunately, <laughs> which is kind of a... Not great for his ego. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but <laughs> no, it's because for the most part, um, the tough part is the the propulsion system. Like you think about it, the real new thing that we're attempting is the the propulsion system. So essentially, whatever I can do to make his job easier, I'm going sure. to try and do. Um, there are going to be points where um, I say I'm going to have to uh, lock down certain interfaces that won't change. And and he's just going to have to accept that. And we're going to both have to agree on what that looks like. And once we both agree on what that looks like, it cannot change. Um, because if, if, if it does change, then it would require a lot of time and money to change that. So that's kind of where the line is drawn. Um, most of the time, we kind of have a pretty good dynamic of, of kind of on the fly back and forth. Um, so usually we, we don't have too much of a problem about that. But yeah, most of the time I don't get to tell him uh, <laughs> <Right>. anything. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it helps that Buzzy and I have been working together both here at VIA and then previously in school for about six or seven years now. So we know each other pretty well and have a pretty good dynamic going on. Um, but I mean, that's one of our claims to fame with our engines too, is that while yes, most of the time it's hard to have Buzzy come to me and say, hey, I need you to change this on the engine. But there are a lot of aspects that we've designed into these engines and the way that we design these engines that allows us to tweak them in some ways that work with structures and the rest of the vehicle to try and make it 
easier on their side as well uh, to integrate them into the system. We've taken a, a unique approach where it's not design the engine, then design the rocket, or design the rocket, then design the engine. It's somewhere in the middle where we're doing the both of them together. Part of that's driven by our timeline and uh, the requirements set by our managerial powers that be uh, that say they need a rocket that can do this by this time. So we haven't really had the luxury of doing one than the other. We kind of have to do both at the same time. Yeah, it definitely makes it a lot more intense and we have to, to verify a lot more as we kind of go. Um, but for the most part, it's the, the system works pretty well and we're kind of working at interfaces and then working on both sides independently and then um, making sure to come back and see if everything fits kind of like that. that that's uh, profile. Very cool. Uh, tell us a, a little bit about what the ground support equipment looks like. Essentially, it's a, a lot of the same stuff, and we're working uh, we're working diligently on our side, trying to figure out exactly where um, on the regulation side where we can launch from and, and not have any issues. But for the most part, we're right uh, on the the Cape Coast, so from our facility, it's a short drive over. Um, so essentially, the the current uh, going idea is a uh, transport erector launcher. Uh, kind of like a modified trailer bed that the uh, vehicle gets sat on, brought over to the pad, uh, raised up using hydraulics built onto that actual TEL. So I kind of imagine a smaller, almost, um, what is it, Firefly or SpaceX? They have the big... Well, so uh, the, currently the companies that I'm aware of that have TEL-style uh, systems, so basically your your launcher erector is all on a trailer uh, and you can back up to any concrete clean pad and launch it from. Um, so Astra does that currently, mm -hmm. and then ABL Space Systems is also looking at doing that with their system as well. Um, so what our infrastructure overall would look like is very similar to theirs, minus the fuel. Otherwise, yeah. it's exactly the same because we still have to deal with liquid oxygen just like them. We have to control the rocket just like them. We have to have nitrogen purge on everything just like them. We have to have a helium pressure for our tanks just like them. The, the, really, it's the exact same thing minus having to deal with the fuel. Um, so that does increase our safety because fuel generally has some sort of danger to it when you've got near the oxygen. Um, I mean, the oxygen is a cryogenic oxygen, so it is still very cold, and you have to consider that if you touch it, you will freeze. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there's still a lot of safety aspects in that regard, but there's a lot less of a flame concern due to not having a lot of fuel there. But uh, otherwise, it's very... So I don't know if you guys watched any of Astra's live streams, but it would look similar to that. Basically. Yeah, kind of like a cool. clean pad approach. So bring everything with mm -hmm. you, take everything back out with you. Since this thing burns plastic, are there some different environmental concerns uh that they might have, like depending on where you're launching from? So normally you would think burning plastic is bad, right? Um, however, the plastics that we're using have almost the exact same chemical makeup as uh, RP1 locks. So the reason when you think of burning plastic as bad is because um, when you burn it in the atmosphere, there's a lot of other things in atmosphere uh, than oxygen. So you've got nitrogen, argon, helium, all the other trace elements in the atmosphere, and those will burn and mix with those uh, hydrocarbon gases as the, the plastic starts to burn, and it creates a lot of nasty fumes, as well as because it's burning in the atmosphere, it's a much cooler combustion, so you don't get a complete uh, mixing and combustion process between the two, uh, and instead you get a nasty sooty black smoke but because we're running it with a pure oxygen fuel inside of the combustion chamber at over uh, 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit, you're getting a much more complete combustion and getting mostly just 
uh, CO2 and CO and H2O as your exhaust constituents. Are you doing a hybrid engine on the upper stage as well? Yep. So every one of our engines uh, on the main vehicle are hybrid based. So the, we have short duration, long duration, medium duration, but all of them are hybrid fuel uh, engines. Yeah, and, and one of the main goals of the, from structural-wise, too, is to, to try and commonize the, as many of the mounting points as possible. So then if during development mm -hmm. and testing we need to swap around some engines, so you can do it real nice and easy. Uh, but since they're all going to be hybrid, they're all going to have the same kind of logic, so we can use the same kind of mounting systems for all of them. So I guess we're going to start wrapping it up. And, and thanks for coming on the show. It's, it's been very interesting. I've learned a lot about hybrid rocket engines. We don't talk about them enough. But uh, so to close out, we have two final questions. The penultimate here is where would you like to be found on the internet? Well, so you can find Viaspace at viaspace.com and then at Viaspace on all major social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and um, then you can find myself, Kenny Wallace, on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. Um, Buzzy, anything for you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Michael Buswell, but um, nothing special there. Cool. All right. So our final question is less of a question and more of... Uh, a quiz show or a panel show game. It's called Overrated Underrated. Um, so I'm going to give you a quick fire list of products or concepts. And we want you guys to tell us if the world, not yourself, but if the world sees too much value in them, too little value in them, or I guess in rare instances that the world correctly values them. All right. So the first one comes from a little bit of the early hybrid engine research I was doing. Uh, so uh, first up, overrated or underrated wood-powered rockets. The amount of people that even know that that exists is probably <laughs> a handful. So I'd probably say underrated. <laughs> I'd say it's both overrated and underrated. Uh, I could go into depth on that. But yeah, it, it, it's not the most efficient process. Yeah. Overrated or underrated? Shock diamonds. Overrated. Definitely <laughs> overrated. Yeah, overrated, but it, that one hits home. Yeah. <laughs> They're very pretty. They're very pretty, but they indicate that the uh, nozzle is not optimally expanded. Overrated or underrated hybrid cars? I'd say they're uh, underrated. I'd say they're about right. Like, I mean, they're, they're moving in the right direction. I feel like a lot of people are getting into it. So Overrated or underrated? The Star 48 engine built by Thiokol. I mean... Orbital ATK. No, no, sorry. The the Star 48 engine built by Northrop Grumman. Uh, so that's a solid rocket engine. Um, I would say it's neither overrated or underrated because it was developed specifically for its application. <laughs> Is that consensus? Uh, I'd yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Finally, overrated or underrated Labradoodles? Overrated. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. Great dogs, but everyone wants them. Yeah, like everyone they, I talk to. They are cute. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, I absolutely love space nerds, and I'm very glad that we got two of them to sit still long enough to answer all of our questions. Well, we were glad to be on. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, it's always, it's always cool, uh, great to talk. So thank you. All right. So let's do a this week in spaceflight history and we have four winners uh law loving desky miller the greek and steigarfield so ben last week your clue was freshly imported and my mm -hmm. clue was domestically repurposed so kind of a <laughs> variation on a theme here and what that event was was on june 4th 1996 and that was the maiden launch of uh the arian 5 flight v88 
um, and V stands for flight. And yeah, eight eight. I don't know where that number comes from, but that's the that is the name of this particular mission. Yeah. So I guess we'll get to the relevance of the clue shortly. But uh, at the top, I just wanted to go very quickly into some facts about uh, the Ariane Five launch vehicle. But mostly, I'm going to be focusing on the event that precipitated the clue. Um, so this vehicle, most important thing to know, and this this will become relevant, is that the Ariane Five is not a derivative of the Ariane launch family. So this is really like a brand new rocket. But they called it, you know, the Ariane Five. But really, it wasn't in Ariane Five. It was its own thing, and they just called it that. Mm. Uh, don't know why. I guess they just wanted to keep. They just kind of like the name. They wanted to stick with it. Mm-hmm. This was designed by Airbus Defense and Space to launch Hermes, and so it is human rated. And we've talked about that a lot. They've never launched people on board the rocket, but it can launch a Hermes if they had one. Uh, totally a human rated rocket. And some other cool facts: it has a dual launch capability to launch two large geosats. And this is with the use of something called SILDA, which is the Ariane Double Launch System. It's like a payload adapter that basically you can put two satellites on it, and you stack them on. Top of each other. So some specifications. Uh, the first stage is a Hydrolux uh, first stage and is powered by a Vulcan 2 engine. Um, so we've talked about Vulcan before. Again, I'm not going to go into it, but it's a very capable Hydrolux engine. Um, then it has two side boosters, which are P241 solid rocket boosters. The upper stage was powered by an ASTIS hypergolic engine. So this uses monomethyl hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide propellant. And it is pressure fed, which allows it to be capable of multiple restarts. So that's just a brief rundown of uh, the Arian. And this particular vehicle was the Arian 5G, but there are four other variants that have since been developed, which are you know much more capable. Uh, but this was the first one. So uh, the clue getting back to that uh, domestically repurposed, uh, this is in reference to some software that was um, on board the Arian 5 vehicle, which shouldn't have been because that was meant for the Arian 4. So they basically domestically repurposed something, um, and they really shouldn't have. Mm. So yeah, for this maiden launch, the actual launch itself looks pretty at first, you know, pretty normal. We've all seen launches from Kourou. It lifts off. It kind of ascends into some foggy clouds or whatever. And then it quickly, after 37 seconds, it veers like very drastically, like the rocket tries to take a hard left turn and then, uh, you know, begins to disintegrate and then it blows up. So something went horribly wrong here. What it is, is this, this has to do with the inertial reference system on board the Ariane 5, which uses software meant for the Ariane 4. They didn't like delete some code that should have been essentially. And the thought was that if it doesn't affect anything, then just leave it because they kind of wanted to do as little as possible when it, when it came to those changes. They figured that the code for Ariane 4 was good, so don't mess with it unless you need to. Mm. Um, the problem is that they just didn't realize that you know, they needed to in this case. Mm. So I guess for a second, we should talk about the horizontal bias and what that is, or it's called BH, which I guess is just, you know, the French way of doing it. <laughs> Basically, there was a, um, what's called a strap down inertial platform, which uses laser gyros and accelerometers, uh, in order to determine its horizontal bias, which basically is, you know, um, its relationship to like the down direction to gravity, um, in order to make sure that the rocket knows its correct orientation. But this is something that should only be done on the ground. There's no need to do it in flight. Like in order to calibrate the horizontal bias, that's just something that's uh, necessary just prior to liftoff. Mm. So the problem was that this was still active during flight. Um, and that's the first part of the problem. So for the first 37 seconds of flight, things seemed fine. And then, you know, things were not fine. So something happened at that 37 second mark. And this is down to what's called a conversion error. Um, so without getting too into the weeds, 
basically, um, I, and I, I think we've talked about it before, or at least Ben, you have, um, a 64 bit floating point number, right? So this is kind of like scientific notation, but for computers is kind of how I think yep, about it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> this is a value that within the computer on board the Arian 5, or rather the SRI, which is, uh, the inertial reference system, or again, that's the French way. So it's not the IRS, it's the SRI. <laughs> just kind of go with it. I'm just kind of like using the terminology that they used. <laughs> the computer on board, uh, converted this 64 bit floating point number into a 16 bit signed integer. Once the value of that conversion is so high that it cannot fit within 16 bits, that's when you have a problem. So for the first 37 seconds of flight, this was not an issue, but then eventually, uh, the horizontal bias value became so large that it caused an exception. The range, uh, if anyone's interested, uh, for 16 bits, if you're trying to, you know, like what is the largest number that you can have plus accounting for, like whether it's plus or minus, right? So positive or negative, uh, it is negative 32,768 to positive 32,767 to the 16th place. The highest number you can get in binary is that particular range, which is, I think, 64,000 something or other, um, or 65,000. But again, this is to account for both positive and negative. So you kind of split the difference and that's what you get. So just within that range. Um, but eventually it exceeded that range around the 37 second mark caused the exception, which is called an operand error. Um, a term that I'm not too familiar with, but, uh, basically this error, so it sort of cascaded a sequence of events. Be before you go on to the to the cascade, what really sucks is that the vertical bias, um, the code checks to see if it's in a range that it can be converted to uh, the 16-bit integer. And if it can't be, then it doesn't do the conversion, but the horizontal velocity just goes straight to the conversion and doesn't check. Right. And that's because there was no need to have it do that for the Arian 4. Yep. <laughs> it shouldn't be a problem. Right. Yeah. So, um, again, like little did they know, that's kind of what the whole thing is about is that they just didn't, you know, like double check what was going on with this new launch vehicle, which, you know, does things differently. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so basically you have two inertial reference systems. The first one uh, throws this exception. It switches to the second one, which then does the exact same thing. That one is basically simultaneously running in what's called hot mode, um, which is just a kind of standby. So, you know, both of them are simultaneously working, but only one is feeding the data to, uh, you know, the flight computer on board the rocket itself. So, uh, the active module sent at that point a diagnostic bit pattern to the onboard computer which then interpreted that as flight data because what else could that be because you don't have any diagnostic things that are sent because it that just was not built into the software. So it thought that this was flight data when in fact it was, you know, a whole bunch of ones and zeros which were actually the diagnostic bit pattern. Um, and that's the data that it used uh, to make the correction in its flight and that's when it veered off course oh dear. and the whole thing blew up. So like if, you, if you're ever on a website or, or using software and you see object object in square brackets that's the exact same thing that's happening here right it's it's taking data and assuming its type is one thing but it's actually something else so object object is when um in javascript you take an object and call its to string method and it doesn't have a good way to convert itself into a string uh it just goes with the inherited property from ob the object class that just spits out object, object. And it always cracks me up when I see it because it's like a lot of the time, my expectation is that somebody 
is a Python programmer programming in JavaScript because they expected this implicit type conversion to happen and it didn't happen properly. <laughs> but it's really funny that, yeah, it basically interpreted a diagnostic bit pattern as a velocity. <laughs> it's that's like mm -hmm. absolute gibberish. It's like, how fast are we going? The speedometer's broken. Oh, we're going that fast. Okay. I better slam on the brakes or whatever. Like it's just, it's kind of silly. Well, and so that was not even, that didn't necessarily have to lead to this. So there's one more thing that happens, which is it at, at that point after it had done that, the processor on board the inertial reference system shut down because that is what it was instructed to do, which was, um, you know, in this case, and as it turns out, really in all cases should not happen. Um, but in this case, it was, you know, in, uh, just told to basically turn off. So at this point, the rocket has no more, you know, inertial guidance. So um, there were some other options that could have been on the table. It could have even done, you know, like its best guess that kind of thing, um, which I believe is how the Ariane launch vehicle works now. Like if, you know, this type of a sequence had occurred. Well, I don't even think it needed the bias information after the, after like T plus seven or something like, like right. as it it's leaving the yeah. pad, it normally would just ignore it all. So did this happen after that point? Yeah. This happened after it left the pad in at T plus three seven seconds. So it didn't even need it. Wow. No, okay. no, it didn't need it. Yeah. Which is something that we'll get to, but oh, I, yeah, okay. I wasn't sure what sequence <laughs> to put this in. Um, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically the the processor shuts down, has no more initial guidance, or it has no more initial reference system. So uh, the rocket's kind of flying blind at that point. But, you know, again, it had already veered off course, and uh, that's when the whole thing self-destructed. Um, specifically, and I couldn't figure out the sequence of events here, either the self-destruct was caused by the separation of the boosters due to the dynamic loads or part of the destruct sequence was to separate the boosters. I'm not sure which uh, no, because I, th I read I think different things depending. Yeah, I, I think I think the vehicle started to break up and that's when the self-destruct activated. Because there are different sources that say one caused the other or, you know, like I'm not sure which it was. Suffice to say the whole thing was at a certain point instruct or not instructed, but it went into self-destruct mode. And yeah, and so it basically blew up 4,000 meters just above Karoo, 12 miles down range or 12 kilometers east of the pad. And so there was a whole lot of debris that they picked up and sifted through and they actually did recover the IRUs and all that stuff. And so they were able to, you know, piece this back together. Yeah, so basically due to the limitations of the Arian 4 hardware, the software engineers, they only protected against four out of seven of uh, the overflow variables. So this is, again, getting a little bit into the weeds, but basically, you know, you can protect against various types of overflow events, but they didn't see it necessary because, again, this was not something that would ever happen on the previous Arian vehicle. And they also didn't have a whole lot of room on the computer, or at least that was the case with Arian 4. I think with Arian 5, it would have been just fine. But again, they didn't want to change anything. So they kept everything the way it was, and they kind of kept things to a you know, very bare minimum. The data conversion instructions, which is uh, in ADA code, and I'm not sure what that is. Um, what specific type of code is that, Ben? I assume you know. I mean, I, I think it's an assembly language. Some kind of an assembly language? Okay. Yeah, so uh, the horizontal bias or the BH value was not even required after launch of the Arian 5. Essentially, for both the Arian 4 and 5, this is just to get the horizontal bias into alignment. So this is something that you have to do on the pad. Um, it's no use once you've launched. Um, but for uh, the Ariane 4, there was a 
possible hold that could be done during the countdown. And it was between, I believe, uh, T minus nine and T minus five seconds. So it's a very small window there. But, you know, if that hold happened, there was still the potential to launch within about a 40 second window. That was a possibility for the Ariane 4. And so instead of having to uh, recalibrate the SRI, they would just keep the thing running. And that's why it had that 40 second time of operation there. Um, or probably even maybe a little bit longer than that. I'm not sure. But in either case, what happened was on the Ariane 5, um, this was running pretty well after launch because it does not have that time on the ground. Plus, uh, the horizontal bias value got very high very, very quickly once it had launched. And that's what threw the exception, which would not have happened with Ariane 4 um, because they take different flight paths. So basically, there's more horizontal bias on uh, the Ariane 5, or at least for this particular flight. And that's what threw the exception and blah, blah, blah. Um, but on the Ariane 4, this would not have happened. And so, yeah, this is just something meant to just be done on the pad and not once you've already launched the vehicle, but it was already running. Um, and yeah, that's what happened. So first off, like this is totally my kind of to So thank you for doing such a good job covering <laughs> this. Um, I wanted to mention a couple things. First, uh, Chris in the chat, uh, says that they have to align their IRS on the ground and it takes about 10 minutes just while you're sitting in the gate. But if you get a solid bump, it takes longer or it fails to align. And some of the older models, um, even just having passengers boarding is enough to get it to fail. Um, so like that's a really, it's a different system. It's different hardware, but it's like a good, uh, a good analogy for like why you want to be able to reset this thing quickly or, you know, keep your alignment. Yeah. In the case of this particular unit, it would take about 45 minutes or more to realign it. So that's what they were looking at. And so, yeah, they didn't, they did not want to have to do that. So they just kept the thing running, you know, like even if they had to do a launch reset, hopefully it would happen within that window where they could do it very, very quickly. But if you got to T minus five, then they would have to probably schedule for the next day or something because there are certain systems that come online that can't, you know, just be reset. Yeah. But yeah. And then uh, before before I hand it back to you, uh, I, I just pulled up the Ada language uh, Wikipedia article. Um, it is a compiled language, um, and it is actually built to make this kind of thing hard to do. It's uh, statically typed. Uh, it, the first sentence is Ada is a structured, statically typed, imperative and object oriented, high level programming language extended from Pascal and other languages. And so like it is, it's statically typed, strongly types and nominatively typed. So like this is supposed to be really good at not having this happen. And it, it sucks that the, the programming team, uh, when they were doing this conversion, I just read that they had seven variables that they, uh, looked at in particular. And, uh, four of them, they added, uh, overflow checking. And three of them, they decided there's no way this is going to overflow. It's better to yeah. run this fast and not, and not check it. Um, and that, right. Yes. Yeah. And then uh, finally, Colin in the chat says both Ada the language and Adafruit the company were named after Ada Lovelace. Pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, that's kind of what I figured once I realized who it was named after. I I never even jumped. I assumed Ada was a 
was an acronym. So good job with your uh, intuition. <laughs> so yeah, what led to this or what was this failure on the part of the programmers back at Arium? Was it the culture within the Arium program was to protect against random hardware failures? And in that case, you know, a, a backup could be used. And they did have a backup SRI, um, but that failed too because it was the same software error. So the assumption was that the software was sound um, because it had been used on the Arium 4 launch vehicle. No, and it didn't have any problems. So why protect against a problem with the programming or, you know, this overflow event when that never happened before and it wouldn't happen with the Arian 4. It's just that it does happen with the Arian 5. So that was kind of their thought process. Yeah. So at, at that point, there were many changes made to the Arian 5 for its successive flights. And I didn't, I, I didn't want to list them all. But basically, when it comes to this, they just wanted to make sure that they switch off the, the alignment mode just after liftoff and do not shut down the SRI processor in flight. And that's just under any circumstances. So if something does go wrong, uh, do not default to shutting down the processor, which I don't know how common that is with hardware like this, like that that would be a good thing to do because um, I mean, that's just what the default, what would you call it? The default response would be, but why you'd want to do that with an inertial reference system. I don't know, um, why that would ever be good. So, so exactly why that was there in the first place. I'm not sure. I think it maybe that was just a programming error that should have been corrected even during the Arian 4 program. I don't know. They, perhaps. As far as I can tell, they, they really actually looked at this as a potential issue, uh, back on Arian 4. And, and I think they really just made the call. We would rather have smaller code that runs faster and you know it's not eating up that much extra processor time but it just must have been you know what the it's it's the inertial measurement system we want this to be as fast as possible so we're going to save every clock cycle that we can or something mm -hmm. like that and it kind of reminds me of a couple you know we've talked about some other failures with uh, the the Arian program before there was the one with uh, with the cloth that was left inside of oh, yeah. some kind of a manifold um, <laughs> the red the red plumber cloth yeah mm -hmm. yeah then there was the other one where they had the guidance computer had the wrong launch azimuth because they were launching from a different pad do you remember that um, yeah that that's embarrassing <laughs> yeah so they seem to have some software quality control issues. Um, mm. that, that seems to be a recurring theme. But I think that, yeah, so after this, there was one other failure, I think, and then after that, they haven't had any other. So really, the Arian 5 launch vehicle has been very, very successful. It's still going today. Um, the, the plan is to switch to the Arian 6 in a couple years, I believe. But um, yeah, for now, it's still doing well. But uh, this first flight definitely was, I guess, needed in order to make sure that all the rest of them uh, went well. <laughs> So yeah, that is your this week in spaceflight history uh, about the Arian Five. Awesome, thank nice. thank you, David. Like for real, like this this was <laughs> right up my alley. I I love. Yeah, this. I figured. I mean, I figured this is like this is like yeah, because I was like this is Ben territory right here. Mm -hmm. But um, hopefully I can do it some amount of justice. I know I wouldn't have gone into the kind of detail that you could, but because it's like beyond me with all the computer stuff. But I try to you know keep it simple for both myself and the listeners. Well, you made it clear enough that I could understand. So. I think you did a okay, great well, job. Okay, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, next week is the 7th of June through the 13th of June. And uh, Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 2012, making it harder for ourselves. Great. I'm a little bummed that you didn't keep the uh, domestic uh import <laughs> repurpose theme going but you know like <laughs> we're we're lucky to get one or two of those in a row so okay. i was gonna say I, I can't think of what like i mean if it's not <laughs> domestic or imported what is it <laughs> right like, is there a third category <laughs> all right um if you have a guess as to what 
this, uh, what this clue is in reference to, uh, shoot us a tweet. Use the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Okay, so let's move on to see count them six upcoming space flight events um not all of them launches we have one really interesting one first what is that one ben yeah i agree this is pretty cool um so this is the x eva moonwalking and spacesuit awards announcement so uh x eva is the the new uh, exploration EVA suit. So this is like going and doing things rather than a flight suit that you sit in while you're launching. Oh, I said XEVA, but it's actually XEVAs. So it's exploration EVA services. Um, so it's, uh, a, a bit more than just, uh, a spacesuit contractor. It's going to be really cool. Um, that is happening on June 1st. That's Wednesday. You can watch it on NASA TV. Uh, the event looks like it starts at 2 p.m. Eastern time. And next up, we have another non-traditional event. It is yet another Parker Solar Probe Perihelion. And so this will be number 12 on the mission. Uh, it's its third of seven at this particular orbit, which will be taking it to as close as 9.2 billion meters or gigameters from the sun or cruising at a ridiculous 163 <laughs> kilometers per second. Yep, that's fast. Okay. <laughs> and then on June 3rd, we have the launch of Progress 81P. So this is a launch of a Soyuz from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Um, it is the, uh, well, uh, the 81st Progress Cargo Delivery Mission to the International Space Station, flying on a Soyuz 2.1A or in a 2.1A configuration, and it is launching at 0932 UTC. So, yep, keep an eye out for that. Uh, and then coverage of the launch, um, I don't know how good that will be, but you can watch the docking on NASA TV, of course. So, yeah, you can still watch that. And then after that, we're going to be watching a Long March 2FG flying Shenzhou 14. So this is the third flight up to Tiangong. And Shenzhou, the Shenzhou 14 crew is going to be doing some pretty cool stuff. They're going to be welcoming a number of add-on modules to the station. Uh, those modules over the life of Shenzhou 14 will be arriving, uh, docking to the forward node, and then they're going to use their robotic arm to move them to one of the radial nodes. This is sort of a TBD kind of situation. Um, I believe that the date I'm about to mention is going off of a NOTAM. Uh, so, you know, don't, don't hold your breath. Uh, it probably won't be live streamed one way or another, but we'll see. So right now what we're looking at is Sunday, June 5th, sometime during the day, the window that, uh, launch library sites opens at midnight. So, uh, it's probably an all day kind of thing. Um, and Shenzhou 14 is believed to be launching out of launch area four at Juchuan. And then capping off this week's upcoming spaceflight <laughs> events Nerd. is Capstone. I, I took the shot. Uh, so, right. So this is the uh, Rocket Labs Electron launch vehicle. We'll be taking NASA's Capstone mission, which is going to be the first chunk of metal that we go and put in a NRHO around the moon. Uh, going to be doing some really cool navigation experiments with uh, Advanced Space's CAPS system. And so a lot of really great things. We talked about it on previous episodes. And it has an NET of June 6th with the uh, launch on the 6th uh, slated for 0920 UTC, and this will be flying, as all electrons have so far, from Launch Complex 
uh, 1B in uh, New Zealand. All right. Those are your upcoming space flight events. That's it. Let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Chris, Deathkin, Delta V, Chubby, the Greek, Mike, and Colin for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.